0: Linear Park for Camden on the route of a disused railway line wins approval. New research reveals the shocking health inequalities seen with rising house prices. Last year's huge police raid on Hackney's Anti-Pavilion ruled unlawful. And could architects be replaced by machines? We discuss how AI could radically transform the future of London. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Deborah Denner. Deborah is an architect, director of Frame Projects, and chair of Open City. Welcome to the show. Hi, Merlin. Proposals by James Cornerfield Operations and VPPR for the Camden High Line have been given the go-ahead by Camden Council. This was reported by the AJ this week. The two practices submitted plans last May to regenerate a 1.2km stretch of disused railway in Camden, transforming it into an elevated park, linking Camden Town and its famous market via Camley Street to King's Cross. The architects won an international competition to design the Highline in February 21 as part of an 11 member team. Running eight metres above the ground, the £35 million linear park will feature gardens and walkways, seating areas, cafes, arts and cultural interventions, along with spaces for charitable activities, areas for children's play and a woodland balcony overlooking Camden Town. The full design team also includes Street Space, Hugh Lock, Spears & Major, Pentagram, AKT2, Atelier 10, Tony G and RLB. The park is expected to open in phases starting in 2025 with the Line's initial phase connecting Camden Gardens and Royal College Street. So Deborah, what do you make of this scheme? Uh, The designers say it's budding with opportunities for arts and culture, an essential space for young people to examine and learn about nature. As someone who lives locally, uh, will this meet an important need in the area?
1: Yeah, so I I live in North London in the neighbouring borough of Haringey, but I guess I probably know Camden best because Frame Projects has been um, running its design review panel since 2016. So we get to look at lots of projects across the borough. And I think what's really interesting in relation to this project is that it's got railway lines that create a lot of severance because there are three major railway stations at Euston, Kings Cross and St Pancras. So it's quite hard to move across different bits of the borough. And the High Line will create a completely new pedestrian route. And when it's completed, it'll link residential areas in Kentish Town and Camden Road to the Camley Street growth area and York Way. So it's not just a linear park. It's also a really valuable new way for people living in Camden to get from A to B kind of raised up above the traffic.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting when you look at that link and the exact root of it, because it includes places like, for example, the Maiden Lane Estate, this really beautiful council estate uh, designed by these acclaimed architects, almost like the Barbican, but very few people know about it, and it is kind of isolated from all the other buzz that's happening in Camden, in part because of those those railway lines that sever up the area. Now, but I've seen it. So, you know, some critics online saying, why does Camden Town need this to connect Camden Town to King's Cross? When actually, hey, there's a canal which provides a really beautiful walk from Camden Town to King's Cross. Um, the canal, you know, potentially could be made a bit nicer along that towpath. And maybe that's a simpler connection. Um, is, is that glossing over uh, the potential of this?
1: The towpath's already really well used and it's quite narrow. So you often get kind of conflict between pedestrians and cyclists. And the High Line is, um, it's not just a sort of way of getting from A to B, it's providing green space for a part of the borough that doesn't have a lot at the moment. So those housing estates that you've just mentioned are a little way from Regent's Park. And so it's got value on lots of different levels as a sort of way of getting around, improving access to green space and biodiversity. So I think it's a kind of really laudable project. And what was approved last week by Camden Council was just the first phase. So that's kind of through Camden Town. And the real benefits of it will be when the whole thing is delivered.
0: So it's called the Camden High Line. Famously, New York had a high line. And this was probably more than a decade ago that it opened. I think, it must have been like 2008, 2009. And it was a kind of landmark moment in urbanism around the world, like images of the High Line uh, and stories about people who'd gone to the High Line and had a really great time there uh, were abundant. It was a great success in turning a disused railway in New York into uh, a raised linear park for everyone, which connected together all kinds of different places. The story's somewhat moved on a bit since then um, and perhaps people are a bit more cynical about the impact it's had on regeneration and so on and so forth. Now, um, James Cornerfield Operations, who's working on this one, they famously designed the New York original with Pierre Udolph, um, who's also working on this Camden project. There was another firm, Deliscafidio Renfro, uh, who isn't on this design team, but they were in the competition uh, for this Camden job. Deborah, in your words, what, what do you think made that New York High Line so successful and enviable around the world? Um, Is this project just trying to be a copy of it or is this actually something so much more interesting?
1: I kind of think that the New York Highline is an amazing piece of PR in a funny way because as you say it is so well known but it's not the first project of its kind. So London has already got a linear park on a disused railway which runs from Highgate to Finsbury Park and um, in Paris they've got the Promenade Plantée which was completed in 1993 so that's a three mile long stretch of park on a viaduct which starts at the Bastille Um, and I think what's special about the Paris one and I assume about the New York and the Camden High Line is the way that it kind of creates it's got this sort of slightly magical quality that you you're up above the sort of hustle and bustle of the city in a space where there's you're away from the traffic and there's lots of greenery and you get expansive views so i think that's kind of what makes these projects memorable the Camden High Line is quite different from the New York High Line or the Promenade Plantée because it's going to be running alongside a live railway so Network Rail are leasing a sort of strip of land, which is sort of as wide as 17 metres in some places and kind of narrows down to about a metre and a half in others. It'll need to have a fence that protects you from the passing trains. So it's going to have a very different character because of that. And then I think the kind of whole way that the project being organised is really impressive. So... The Camden bid have run public engagement over four years, and then they worked with Caroline Cole to run an architectural international design competition to appoint the team. And the winning team that's led by James Corner Field Operations includes VPPR, which is a female-led architectural practice based in Camden. So they're kind of getting the best of both worlds. They've got a team which includes a practice that's delivered a sort of world-renowned similar project in New York together with the knowledge of local people and a local design practice. So I think all of those things will make sure that this is a project which is specific to Camden and not just a copy of the High Line.
0: So there's an interesting contrast because obviously this is repurposing a piece of like heavy rail infrastructure in the sky. Um, but there's a big bit of transport infrastructure that exists uh, on every street, and that is um, the space between the middle of the road and the kerb, uh, which is used to often park cars. So quite interesting contrast to the, the Highline project is over in South London, where Lambeth Council has unveiled an ambitious kerbside strategy. So they're saying that 94% of the curbs in Lambeth are taken up by parking spaces, yet only two in five residents in the borough own a car. Um, So what they want to do is reclaim about 25% of this curbside space for all kinds of cool things like shared scooter and bike bays, cycle hangers and parklets. What do you make of this as a kind of counter proposal for greening the infrastructure of the city? Do you think this, this could be a potential success and something that we could you could see in Camden alongside the High Line?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really exciting story because I think people in London, even if they own a car, often only use it a few times a week because using private cars is being discouraged by the councils already. So you end up with residential streets which have got cars parked along either side which are just basically sitting there for most of the time and that represents a huge amount of embodied energy and in my opinion is quite ugly. So I think the curbside strategy is quite exciting because it could be a, a sort of first step towards reclaiming the space that's, um, that's currently just being taken up by quite unlovely lumps of metal and um, on the design review panels that we manage we often we have transport experts so we're often talking about the kind of future of transport and I've just got this sort of fantasy vision of the future of London where driverless cars kind of really work and instead of owning a car you could just kind of order one via an app to turn up at your door on the odd occasion when you need it and then you know one car could be serving the needs of dozens of people so that's a lot less embodied energy and you could reclaim the space that's just taken up by parked cars for much more lovely things like Lambeth is suggesting.
0: Shocking new research from Imperial College London has revealed that the gap in life expectancy between rich and poor areas of London has been increasing over the past few years in lockstep with house price rises. The findings which were published in the Evening Standard this week show the average life expectancy for women rose from 80.9 years in 2002 to 85.4 years in 2019, while the figure for men rose from 76.1 years to 81.6 years in the same time. However, the study also found that this increase has not been felt evenly across the city. The life expectancy gap between the richest and poorest areas of London has actually been widening. The study looked at data from nearly 5,000 of London's lower level super output areas. Um, That's basically an area with an average of approximately one and a half thousand residents each. Uh, And the study found that large gains in life expectancy were seen in areas where house prices were already high or areas where house prices grew the most. At the same time, the research revealed that life expectancy inequality had increased substantially as the gap between the richest and poorest was 19.1 years for women and 17.2 years for men in 19. Um, This compares to figures of 11.1 years and 11.6 years for women and men respectively recorded back in 2002. So it's quite a big leap in the space of 17 years. The findings of the study are especially concerning in light of new census data showing that Tower Hamlets in East London to be one of the most unhealthy places in the UK. This borough has seen some of the lowest life expectancy gains in the city, while house prices have been rising rapidly. Uh, And this is likely to be exacerbating the health inequalities that already exist in the area. So, Deborah, what's this all about? This data shows a correlation between house price and people's longevity. Uh, What is it about house prices that leads to this highly polarised trend in poor health?
1: It's obviously not the cost of property that's making people die old or young, it's a reflection of wealth which gives access to better quality of life, better healthcare, nutrition, as well as more expensive homes. And I think one of the interesting conclusions of the study was that where prices were already high at the turn of the century, life expectancy increased substantially independently of price change and with little change in the resident population so that's reflecting sort of wider societal shifts healthier lifestyles improvements in health care but it's a completely different picture in areas that started with lower prices and their life expectancy only increased proportionally to the change in house prices and that that's reflecting an influx of a wealthier population gentrification of the area so you know, this podcast is about architecture and the built environment and there's a role for for, for that to play in improving life expectancy, but it's a much, much more complex issue. I
0: mean, it is very shocking if we think about how London has changed between two thousand two and twenty twenty-three, which is where we are now. Now obviously this data goes up to twenty nineteen, but it does reveal some pretty shocking shifts in this life expectancy gap between rich and poor it's gone from about 11 years to close to 20 years so it seems like it's on a trend to nearly double um and what's interesting is that during that period so much of housing policy focused on private home ownership um could you imagine anything housing policy could have done over those decades that might have might have stopped this health inequality
1: i mean i think you know exponential rise in house prices in London over the last decade or more, it must be taking up a sort of ever larger proportion of the income that people earn, and that's been as you say stoked by government policy um things like right to buy, which have reduced the available stock of affordable social housing there haven 't been policies put in place to replace that and you know, just the tax system as well, the fact that there's no capital gains tax on buying and selling houses in the way that there is on almost any other sort of asset in society, which encourages people to think of their home as an investment and the thing which will, you know, probably allow them to live comfortably in their retirement or assist their children rather than just being a place, a good place to live.
0: And certainly, the study's authors highlight this highly polarized nature of London's economic growth, um, and that while incomes are growing across the city, nearly half of the population fall in the bottom two rankings of national income deprivation. So again, you know, we're talking about tower hamlets. Back in two thousand two, it was a kind of flagship of economic growth in the Docklands, Canary Wharf rising over the borough. But um, you know, The trickle down from Canary Wharf has not resulted in any real income change or health change, for example, in an area like that. Now, the government right now is promoting a levelling up agenda in some areas outside of London. Um, But what is needed in this city?
1: Yeah, I think Tower Hamlets is a really interesting conundrum, really, because if you think about what makes areas attractive to live in and makes the cost of homes there more expensive. I think closeness to greenery is one of those things. And and Tower Hamlets has got that. It's got a, it's got Victoria Park. It's on the edge of the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. It's got Mile End Park. But still, it's one of the most deprived areas of London. And that might be to do with the housing stock, that there's um, quite a lot of post-war housing that's in a poor state of repair and... The council has got plans to build 2,000 new council homes, so maybe that will help to kind of redress the
0: balance. A police raid on the East London Art and Architecture Initiative Anti-Pavilion has been ruled unlawful by the High Court. This was reported by the AJ. Police stormed the site of the annual Anti-Pavilion Commission in Hoxton Docks last June over fears that bamboo tensegrity structures which were part of a contest winning installation called All Along the Watchtower would be used by environmental protest group Extinction Rebellion to disrupt the work of media outlets. Metropolitan Police officers arrested three people and removed bamboo, concrete blocks and other equipment from the site and also intended to remove the sculptural structure itself but decided not to. The Met has now been ordered to give back all the materials it took, uh, which was all of the charity's spare stock, but has lost the items in the intervening 18 months, according to an email to Russell Gray, who runs the charity, and was one of the three people arrested. More than 100 police officers were involved in the raid, which was one of three carried out by police targeting sites allegedly linked to Extinction Rebellion, uh, with 12 people arrested in total. Project Bunny Rabbit, who designed and created the installation, said, quote, all along the watchtower is a structure that took six weeks to construct and install. The idea that it may be removed and reinstalled for direct action within the space of a day is laughable. Russell Gray, who runs the Anti-Pavilion Charity, which invites architects to test the limits of the planning system with innovative rooftop designs, and was one of those people arrested, said he now wants to work out who ordered and authorised those raids, claiming the Home Office could have been behind the police action. The unlawful raid verdict comes off the back of a litany of grave failings within the Met that has seen Britain's largest police force placed in special measures by the government. Uh, This includes the Child Q case and the death of Sarah Everard. Deborah, both XR and Anti Pavilion have denied the structure had anything to do with the protests. However, the bamboo and steel cable tensegrity structure can be compared to those that were used in various climate protests over recent years. Uh, What do you make of the implementation of architectural sculptures in protest movements like this?
1: Yeah, I think it's just bewildering really that in this case there was such a heavy-handed approach by the police um, when you know really a kind of sternly worded email from the council would have been more proportionate but the structures themselves I think reflect something that's quite charming about British culture in the way that um, creativity is used to make a political point. When I went to the anti-Brexit demonstrations the kind of trouble that people had gone to and the sort of humour in it there was a um, a couple of guys who are dressed up as Norman soldiers carrying a sign saying make Britain Breton again <laughs> and I think the kind of you know the Extinction Rebellion structures are, are just a you know they're part of that sort of culture which is you know really to make you know to have a, a strongly held belief and make it in a sort of creative and engaging way I think is real skill
0: Obviously, the the story here is that um, the anti pavilion has won its legal battle against the police. It's been shown that they were um, unfairly targeted. It's unfortunate that obviously it's necessary to to take a legal battle uh, to get justice. You know, because obviously a lot of people can't afford uh, to get a legal battle going in the first place. But um, there is a sort of question here about architecture that pushes boundaries and pushes legal boundaries or planning boundaries and the anti-pavilion commission was always envisaged as something that would sort of test the limits of what was possible uh, under planning so famously the first thing that went up there was a heat is called hvac it was a kind looked like a, a big ventilation shaft from a from an office block and it was making a point about the fact that you can build stuff like that without planning permission so why do you need planning permission to build a home or a studio or something the city desperately needs, especially if it's beautiful and so on. Um, What do you think about that process of making a culture out of testing the limits of the planning system? Because while it is kind of romantic and noble, um, there are people who test the limits of the planning system. For example, there's developers who illegally demolish pubs and then they're forced to rebuild them. Um, Is this a really great, intellectual pursuit or is it just a bit childish is it just like you know architects being defined against the system and showing that they know best
1: well I spend my whole life supporting the planning process so I have to say that although it might not be perfect it does a lot which is good I think for society so it gives protection to historic buildings which are part of what makes London so special and if you think about the Smithfield market scheme mm. um, where the London the Museum of London is kind of moving to have its new home that's a project that would never have happened if previous planning applications to demolish the historic market buildings hadn't been refused. I I see the planning system as being there to champion the interests of local residents and the general public and it's the job of developers to be sort of looking out for the interests of their investors and there's a kind of healthy tension i think between the planning process and the development industry
0: architecture is on the brink of a technological revolution with artificial intelligence poised to transform the design marketing and creation of buildings this week the aj in an article written by me discussed how free online platforms including the likes of midjourney chat gpt and chatsonic can generate photorealistic architectural visuals and also draft written technical descriptions in seconds. Work that previously took hours of skilled labor at considerable cost to the profession can now be mimicked instantly, offering clients, architects, and architecture students, a new tool that could upset traditional established business models. While the technology is still in its infancy and AI-generated renders are clearly a long way off being able to replace ones drawn by humans, the ability to quickly create ideas in response to a real-life brief could bring rapid changes and unexpected outcomes. Heatherwick Studios' Head of Geometry and Computational Design, Pablo Zamorano said the company is already using AI as, quote, an extra pair of hands we can use to explore design more effectively and efficiently on a range of projects, including an apartment tower the firm is working on in Vancouver. Robert Fine, an architectural communications and business development advisor, said AI is still considered the butt of jokes by most clients, but some of the more experimental younger developers have already started to use AI to create early concepts for testing before they go through any kind of detailed design. So, Deborah, what do you make of some of the concept designs generated by mid-journey AI? Are you impressed?
1: They sort of look like vacuous form-making, really, but not that AI's got a monopoly on that. <laughs> um, I think I can see lots of positives for the design industry in AI. There's, a, as you say, a lot of very time-consuming tasks that it could make more efficient. And, you know, architecture is a notoriously difficult profession when you're starting out and there's a kind of real problem with quite a macho long hours culture. And and it's also, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and there are things that don't get done properly at the moment because the sort of resources of a project don't stretch to cover the time. So if, you know, public consultation and co-design, if AI can kind of write big chunks of your design and access statement for you, and visualizations that help you sell a scheme to a client and that frees your time up to go and talk to the people that are going to be using a building or a new space and maybe even you know find ways of letting them have a a real influence on its design development then that would be fantastic.
0: Clearly the AI at this stage is just making like shapes you know that's not really going to solve a complicated architectural brief but AI is clearly is clearly getting better all the time and I could certainly imagine some very bad architecture being made by AI right it's like totally possible to do something which in a way we're quite lucky in London we don't have that many bad buildings being built anymore but we used to have quite a lot of bad buildings right and it was always say how did this bad building get built and people would say oh you know well very little was spent on design and so people took a very formulaic approach to what they were doing right which is obviously what an AI does. An AI is just going to take a formulaic approach. So does it mean that if an AI can do a bad building, does that mean that maybe architects won't, do bad, won't be able to get away with bad buildings because you'll just be able to always go to an AI and get that bad building?
1: I'm sure that there'll always be bad architecture. A lot of buildings that get built at the moment don't have an architect involved, though. So, you know, one of the things that AI might be able to be used for, and I think, The the, the images in the press is kind of, you know, I suppose like it's quite a fun story. It also makes me feel that they're aiming at the sort of high art end of architecture. And I would have thought that that's where you'd want an actual person who's the kind of author of the design.
0: I guess one thing that is interesting is that form making, although we can dismiss it, it is important to have visuals to proposition an idea, right? So traditionally a developer or an architect will have like a series of visuals, some more form than others, that we put to various stakeholders in the public to say this could be possible. Now that is somewhat a communicational medium which is only really available to people with those skills and tools up until now. Because say if I was a civic society or a group who, say, wanted a different approach for that bit of land or a different approach for that high-profile building, I can just go on AI and generate a whole load of cool renders and put them out there in the world and just say, hey, we don't have an architect on board, but we've got this idea which should be so much better than what the, the, the powers that be are proposing. I mean, could that potentially be quite liberating that more people can debate in that that field of architectural concept
1: yeah i mean maybe but i i sort of think ai is a bit it's like a new tool in the box for the design of cities and architecture and you know i think it's still going to need skilled people building designing a building is such a complex thing with so many different things to consider and some of them are um kind of quite sort of subjective or emotional and you're always going to need um people who are are skilled at kind of having conversations with all the different people who have a sort of stake in the project i think it's a similar situation to when cad first sort of was introduced and the industry will sort of adapt and change to work with this as a kind of new tool
0: so we're on to the culture section um It won't surprise you uh, to hear that we're going to talk about some open city stuff that's coming up, particularly the pub pub quiz. Uh, Tickets are still available for our quiz on the architecture of pubs happening at the Ivy House in Nunhead on Thursday the 2nd of February between 7 and 9.30. Something that's caught my eye uh, happening at the Hayward Gallery opening later in February is a new exhibition by Mike Nelson. It's called Extinction Beckons. Um, It's the first survey of work by the internationally acclaimed artist, it features his psychologically charged and atmospheric installations and I think having wandered into one of them before, they are certainly uh, very atmospheric uh, and very very bizarre Um, Always constructed with materials scavenged, uh, often from salvage yards, junk shops, auctions and flea markets Um, They've been described as having a startling lifelike quality Okay, and then next up, we've got the Architecture on the Thames Boat Tour, the East London version. It's happening uh, on February the 4th, Saturday at one o'clock. Tickets are available on the Open City website. Come along and explore the eastern fringes of the London by boat. It's really, really cool. Deborah, thank you for being on this week's show. Uh, It's been an immense pleasure to talk about all the big news with you. Uh, where should listeners go to stay up to speed on the important work that you're doing is there a social media handle or a website uh, where they can visit
1: uh, so I really only do LinkedIn so you can find me there and um, that's when I, where I al- always publicise opportunities to join design review panels if that's something that any of the li- listeners would be interested in doing and we've also got a website which is frame-projects.co.uk
0: fantastic thank you You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk/slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible, and equitable city.